You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Mantia, and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. We work for Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and every week we like to bring the five most popular stories and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving us a positive review. And if you want to reach any of us, you can get us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com. The .com part, that's important, Jeff. It is, because just going to IEN, that would be hard. Yeah. That'd be difficult. Yeah, yeah, just going to get an error. Uh, Anna, how are you doing this week? Good, ready to go. Yeah. Um, Jeff, I wanted to mention, A, we are live. So if you catch us on YouTube, please ask questions. And B, we still have some T-shirts to give away. I can't believe that. No. We're going to have to start wearing those so people see how awesome they are. Yeah. Just wear them on the podcast. Can no. I have a t-shirt? No. No. Oh. No. We don't have your size. I was definitely, definitely <laughs> supposed to have one ready to give to you during the podcast. And the fact that it's a Thursday completely threw me. Um, But no, like uh, some of our... You set yourself a reminder on your calendar? Yeah. Yeah. No. It was My my reminder was asking Heidi to please remind me. Um. But no, uh, some new listeners, Abe and Jin, really appreciate them supporting the podcast and uh, hope to help out a couple new readers next week. And by readers, I mean listeners. You can't be a writer for like <laughs> 10 years and all of a sudden you start doing a podcast, everyone's still a reader. All right. Well, this is starting off real well. Really well, guys. I'm excited. Uh, anything else before we jump in? Let's go. All right. Let me just keep drowning here. All right. Our first story this week, 73% of workers surveyed are considering quitting. A new report from JobList, a job search database, says 73% of workers are actively thinking about quitting their jobs. About a quarter of the people might quit without a new job even lined up. The report reflects a, quote, deep dissatisfaction with their employment situation. It's obvious because they're thinking about quitting. According to JobList, people are quitting because of how they're treated, how they were treated during the pandemic, problems with salary and benefits, and poor work-life balance. About 20% of people quit to explore new careers, citing the pandemic as an actual positive opportunity for some to explore a more fulfilling option. Jeff, what were your thoughts on the uh, results of the survey? So we pay probably more, pay closer attention to this type of report just because of all the weird stuff that's going on in the economy right now. Mm-hmm. We're constantly talking to manufacturers and learning how they're having difficulty filling all of these open positions. And it's not just manufacturing, it's really the economy as a whole. A lot of different sectors are having that issue. That's So we've got this weird dynamic where all of these jobs are open. We still have an unemployment rate of about 4.8, 4.6%, something like that. We also have this about three, over just over 3 million people collecting unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. I also saw a stat where there's still about 5 million jobs that were filled before the pandemic and are open now. So these aren't really even new jobs. They're just jobs that are, people have walked away from. Mm-hmm. And all the reasons given in this report, to me, they're not new. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. People have always been frustrated about their bosses. They've always wanted to be paid more. Sometimes the work isn't as fulfilling as you'd like it to be. I think we've all been there at different times. The one thing that didn't come out that I was a little bit surprised about is the impact of childcare. Oh, I think yeah. that's having a huge impact on a lot of people leaving the workforce or Great. thinking about leaving the workforce. Mm-hmm. So we've got this dynamic where people can't take care of their kids like they want to. Childcare, as you guys know more than anyone, it's tough to get in. They're mm-hmm. understaffed. They're having a hard time finding people. 
which is odd because they have all these open positions, but because other industries are paying more for child, paying these workers more for different jobs, they can't get enough childcare workers in there. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you've got people who could provide valuable skills out in the labor market staying at home. Yeah. So we've got all these weird dynamics because we've got fewer people taking care of our kids. So we've got fewer people making stuff. We've got less money to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've got a solution. I'm going to fix everything oh, okay. right oh, here. Can't wait to hear okay? this. Yeah. All right. Just, here's what we do. We take some of the, the money that we're using for unemployment benefits because we know there's jobs out there. Mm-hmm. We know there's plenty of jobs out there. Understanding there are a percentage that cannot work for different reasons, disabilities, whatever the case may be. But we take a huge chunk of that money and we actually give it to the daycares so oh. they can expand, mm. hire more people, pay them a better wage, but still keep their prices down so people can afford it. Yeah. So they can give, go back to work. So we can have more people in factories making stuff, more disposable income to keep buying stuff. Because I think that's the way we can keep happening. What I think is the worst part potentially facing our economy right now is inflation. Yeah. I think that's the scariest part of all this stuff. Yeah. So that's my solution. I got more say, money to daycares to help them out, mm-hmm. keep prices low, hire people, pay them better. There we go. Solution. When I heard that you had a solution. I immediately put the defense up. I'm like, all right, let's get ready to play. <laughs> but Anna, I mean, what do you feel? How do you feel about Jeff's solution? Well, I think that, you know, the the Biden plan to put more money into the pockets of kid or parents of small children was kind of, uh, you know, had the same idea, mm-hmm. trying to create more affordable child care options for people because it is very expensive, as we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't hate it. Let's, I don't hate it. It's a difficult situation for a lot of parents to navigate right now. What I like about the idea is that it gives the money to the daycares because when the Biden administration gave the money to the parents, the daycares just raised their prices. It didn't yeah. really help out the parents at all. We just wound up paying. Well, I don't think you saw the wages go up. Oh, no. And yeah. same thing for some of these industries, not all of them, but definitely mm-hmm. they're one of the reasons people are still thinking about leaving is they haven't seen that uptick in wages Make yeah. an impact on their bottom line, their no, personal and, one. And I don't want to get too caught in the daycare weeds here, but I mean, we hear that all the time uh, anecdotally where we're losing uh, good teachers at daycares for another quarter, to, uh, another 25 cents an hour to the daycare down the street. And it's just, you know, maybe it could help some of that turnover. Anyway, Anna, going <laughs> back to people that are thinking about quitting in yeah. general, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, what did you think of the numbers? Just because... I mean, when it said people that are considering quitting, I thought, well, I mean, no matter where you're working, every once in a while, you're like, I don't know, I could do something else. Maybe that's just me. Really, no. David? <laughs> I love it here. Yeah. yeah. I've never had that thought. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I'm going to go in a different direction. I read an interesting article on this phenomenon this week in Business Insider. Mm-hmm. It was an interview with Anthony Klotz, who was the Texas A&M professor who actually coined the term the great resignation that we hear now every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said he's starting to see signs of what he is predicting as sort of the next phase of this and that he believes is inevitable. And that he's calling that boomerang employees, which okay. you can kind of probably guess what that is. Um, employees coming back, asking for their old jobs back. Mm. Um, we know a lot of people are quitting or thinking about quitting. But as a business owner, I think – you need to look at this in maybe a more nuanced way, mm-hmm. um, which is what Klotz is doing here. Like Business Insider points out, for example, um, you know, there's data that says that for 40% of people who have recently quit their jobs, the top reason was burnout. Mm-hmm. 
So burnout, I think, can be addressed for some people, at least, by just taking more of like an extended break to recharge. So Klotz is saying what's already begun to happen is some quitters who just needed like a few months off are coming back to their old employers and saying, okay, I'm ready now Mm -hmm. to come back. Um, And he encourages those employers to take them back um, because the workers have proven, you know, their track record in the past. Hiring right now, as we know, is very hard. Um, He said employers need to make the offboarding process as pleasant as the onboarding process, which I found to be an interesting and great point. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether you're angry or offended or whatever, when somebody quits, you got to keep that to yourself because you might see this person again and you might need them. Mm -hmm. Um, The pandemic, I think, has been extremely stressful on a lot of people. It's been hard for a lot of people. And some of them just need sort of a sabbatical, I think, to hit the reset button and it would be better for them in the long run and maybe for your business as well to kind of support that, I guess. Um, He's saying that they're seeing more and more companies start to offer that as a benefit, this kind of sabbatical, because it's better to lose a good employee for like two, three months than forever. Right. Because a lot of these people just need a a break. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if it were other circumstances, maybe companies wouldn't be amenable to that. But like the pandemic, I mean, people lost loved ones you know, they went through a lot of stuff, double time childcare and work from home at the same time. Just a lot of stuff compounded at once um, that is really weighing on the psyche of a lot of American workers, I would think. so. And with no break, with uh, no break. going from that right into, quote, business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me where people are just like, I need to take it. Take, I need to take a beat to decompress. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's a really interesting point, too, of like being respectful for workers that are on their way out, particularly because we're hearing a lot about companies that are rehiring people that have not just quit, but been fired. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I found interesting about this survey is, you know, it was a survey of 26,000 people and 70% of people in warehouse and factory jobs, when they broke it down, said they're thinking about quitting. So it was close to that 73% number. Uh, Recently though, Chris Brugeber in an article for the AP said, Americans are quitting in droves. According to the Labor Department, 4.3 million people quit in August, which was the highest since December 2000, and up from 4 million in July. That's almost 3% of the workforce. Now, these are primarily public-facing jobs like restaurants, hotels, retail, and education. And that made sense to me because, A, that was during uh, the surge. Mm -hmm. And also, when I was thinking about when I had jobs in these roles and, you know, restaurants, retail, stuff like that, quitting was always on the brain because – you could go work next door for the exact same thing mm-hmm. doing, you know, possibly a new manager. Whatever. Yeah. I think that term quit, I think we need to qualify that a little bit because it's one thing to just say, I'm going to go home and recharge as opposed to I'm leaving here to go someplace else. True. So I, I think that's, that's why I think some of these situations, when we try to lump everybody together, it's kind of misleading. I think mm-hmm. it really does depend on the diff- where you're working right now, the sector you're working in. Um, you know, we look, we've done a number of stories where I think we're going to get into another one where a lot of these workers in these frontline type of positions were just overtaxed for, for 18 mm-hmm. months, yeah. putting in ridiculous hours. So you get what they're thinking about moving on, quitting, changing, whatever, mm-hmm. taking a break. I think there are other instances where there are more personal decisions involved. You know, Anna alluded to some of them. I was talking about daycare, um, so I think it's understanding that and how it is different for a lot of different industries as to why they're leaving, what's yeah. driving that decision, things like that. Well, and uh, before we get out of, out of this story, I wanted to just mention that, you know, we've heard a lot of chatter about people 
suggesting that um, leaving these jobs is a result of vaccine mandates and that all of this information was compiled before the mandates even hit. So, you know, uh, the biggest one that started in August was Tyson. They were the, one of the biggest companies that started with a vaccine mandate. Um, and it seems to be going well. I think they were at last rechecked. It was like 91 percent. Mm, 92 percent. Yeah. And then so uh, President Biden on September 9th, that's when he said that any company with 100 or more workers were going to have to require vaccinations. And we've seen like the Boeing company has told uh, employees this week that they must be vaccinated against COVID-19 or possibly be fired. Um, so I just wanted to say very clearly that these numbers don't even reflect that yet. And, uh, you know, it's a very difficult thing to navigate. Uh, John Holden, the president of International Association of Machinists, said that, uh, you know, the reality is that members are very polarized by the vaccine issue. And I think that we might see a little bit more movement uh, depending on where people stand on these uh, vaccine requirements. Potentially, yeah. Okay. Jeff, no? Yeah, I just get frustrated with this, with some of this stuff because – at the same time, you want people who want to be there. How, how much are you going to do to accommodate somebody? I understand yeah. you're talking about bringing somebody <laughs> back, but I mean, at some point, it's like you, if you don't want to be here, if you don't want to work, mm-hmm. that is your choice. Yeah. Do your thing. I know we have a job to do. We need to get stuff out the door. We need certain people to do it, but I don't know. I feel like there's accommodating this like softness that's come that's come about. Maybe it's due to the pandemic or it's a generational thing. Or mm-hmm. I just turned eighty, like my daughters tell me, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. right before your eyes. But you're gonna keep the ball if it comes in your yard. You're gonna keep it, right? Pop it probably in front of them, <laughs> then throw it back to them. Uh, very good. Um, I mean, maybe it is just that we've all gone soft, Jeff. Except you. Yeah, except no. Jeff, right? Uh-huh. All right. Last week, Anna was the monster. This week, Jeff is soft. Very good. It's always soft. Good. Uh, all right. Uh, never mind. Jeff's the monster. Jeff's the monster. All right. It's good that it moves. Uh, our next most popular story, Amazon shopper faces prison and fine for fraudulent returns. Hudson Hamrick, a Charlotte, North Carolina native, bought a few things on Amazon and then tried to return them. The thing is, he sent back different things. <laughs> One problem was that the items Hamrick sent back were similar, cheaper items as a result. Uh, and then he sold the original items on different platforms like eBay. So double dipping, if you will. The scheme spanned five years, and Hamrack tallied nearly $300,000 in total fraud over 300 fraudulent transactions. For example, he bought an Apple iMac Pro for about $4,200 and returned an older non-pro model with a different serial number, and he sold the new one on eBay. Hamrek pled guilty and faces up to 20 years in prison for wire fraud and a $250,000 fine. Anna, I bet he wasn't thinking he faced 20 years when he's just like, I'm <laughs> scamming the system. Yeah, I know. That's inventory theft, man. You got to <laughs> you got to squelch that, squash it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think this obviously has been going on for a while, but I found this story to be quite timely because um you know, the pandemic really sent e-commerce into overdrive Mm -hmm. and companies that weren't previously selling online kind of finally felt the impetus to do so. Um, There's a lot that goes along with that, including the need to try to combat the kind of fraud that's much easier to snuff out when your transactions are involving fewer channels. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you get Omni, you have these issues that can come up, like people buying stuff online and returning them in store or buying them in store and returning them online or whatever, you know. 
there's a lot to manage. And there are fraud protection solutions out there, some of which use technology like machine learning that can kind of track and reject returns that come from people who have a history of fraudulent activity, for example. Mm. Um, Another more basic effort involves simply being like super accurate with your records, Um, you know, inventory and tracking and stuff like that. Companies can do that with software, not as well with spreadsheets. We know that there's still a lot of spreadsheets um, being used in the industry because apparently not everyone hates Excel as much as I do. I don't get that. I would happily throw that in the trash. Yeah. Um, But anyway, I thought this was a good reminder that e-commerce is great, but it requires really a lot of these other foundational, um, you know, tech structures to help support that, to protect your business, because people love to scam. Mm -hmm. We have learned that. We knew that a long time ago, but (laughs) (laughs) it just keeps coming up, you know? This guy just didn't have the inherent Midwestern guilt, like when, uh, Jeff, when you try and return something smaller from Amazon, and they're like, just keep it. It still feels like you're stealing. <laughs> yeah, kind of. What I don't get is how is it? How did it take this long? I mean, I understand it was only like it's mm-hmm. an average of what a hundred bucks per fraudulent return. Basically, is what he was By averaging. Thousand. Was he using the same thousand? account every time? Do we know? <clears throat> I'm not. No. Every okay, time. I'm just curious. But I just thought like the red flag would be the computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, if he sends <laughs> he sends back an apple from you know with a green screen and everything for for something that's brand new, wouldn't the person checking that in? Maybe, I don't know, raise the red flag. Yeah. Uh, just, I, don't, I don't know how it took this long to get this guy. Maybe the concern is that it wasn't a person checking it in. Yeah, there is, we are fair. running out of red flags. There's a supply shortage even of red flags because we're not, <laughs> we do not have enough. Right? Well, and especially, you know, I'm looking at something on geekwire.com and it talks about Amazon has invested over $700 million to protect against fraud. And it's employed, this one really got me, over 10,000 people to work on fraud detection. Mm-hmm. I mean, this article goes on to say it's using a combination of advanced machine learning that you guys talked about and expert human investigators to protect the store proactively mm-hmm. from bad actors and bad products. And all that's great. But then again, you look at this guy and he becomes almost a hero to other people who want to do this. Oh, yeah. They're going to learn from what he did. Maybe, you know, like what Anna mm-hmm. said, use different accounts, things like that. At the end of the day. <laughs> Sorry, that was not meant to be a tip. <laughs> <laughs> Best practices. Um, The other thing that's frustrating is somebody, we all use Amazon. It's become embedded into our daily lives. What Mm -hmm. does this do for pricing then? I mean, for all the legitimate resellers, Mm -hmm. it starts jacking up prices and then it's just this supply chain gets weaved into like every component of our life Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I wish they would have caught them sooner. Well, and I think a big part of that, uh, the 10,000 people working on fraud are, you know, Amazon has a lot of third-party sellers and I can't even imagine reining that in. We've seen, we've done stories on the people that are selling garbage. Yeah, they as, can't rein it in. Yeah, as new. So, I mean, I feel like you say 10,000 sounds like a lot. And I don't know if that's enough to kind okay. of keep this under control. I mean, it was, I mean, it was Amazon that detected the fraud and then referred the case to law enforcement. But, uh, I mean, uh, it kind of reminded me of that, uh, the GPS story, the guy that stole the GPS the other day. Yeah. I mean, it has to be so open and shut as a case. No wonder he like settled or mm-hmm. pled guilty because it was like, no, here's all the things you bought and here's all the things you sent us back. There's the evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, and tying it back into the first story though, when people feel like they're overworked, I mean, we've heard about that at Amazon and some of these fulfillment centers. It's really different is where this stuff's coming in. But if they were dealing with this many returns, maybe it is easy to overlook even a computer yeah. that was worth $3,000 less than the one that's purchased because 
you got to get it out the door. You got to clear it for the next thing to deal with. Yeah. He had some big ticket items. Like he did the same thing with a $3,500 coffee machine, which I don't even understand. And a gaming laptop that was worth about $2,800. So, I mean, averages, it was about a thousand dollars per item, but he must've done it a lot with a lot of smaller ticket items. And maybe if he would have, you know, tried to fly under the radar a little bit. And even if it's going, if it's a different account, it's got to be going to the same address, right? There had to be some, some yeah. stuff they could have. Yeah, but say would have caught. Say it's you know some sort of computer program that flags these accounts. Then yeah. does like a human need to go in and actually look at what's happening? And that could be where the backlog is. I mean, that would take forever. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Well, and it also reminded me of how you know this sounds like something that he got away with once, and then all of a sudden it was five years later. He's just like, I don't know. It got away from me. Sorry. Well, it's I'm happy way. to see the penalty is not soft. No, no. The penalty yeah, is yeah. not soft. Uh, very good. Let's move on to our next story. Bad butterfly valves cost company $4.5 million. Two weeks ago, Crane Company agreed to a more than $4.5 million settlement to resolve allegations that it sold unqualified valves to the military for use in U.S. Navy ships. The issue came to light after Corla Jacobson, a former quality manager at Crane, filed a whistleblower lawsuit. The, cra- the case boils down to problems with two parts that Crane supplied to military shipbuilders, butterfly valves with reinforced Teflon seats and valves with mono bolting on the valve assembly. Crane said the parts complied with mil-spec and qualified product list requirements, but it turns out they didn't. Crane supplied 107 RTFE seat valves and 3,672 unapproved bolting valves that were non-compliant. They will pay the United States $4.5 million in change, and once the U.S. receives its cut, whistleblower Corla Jacobson will receive $855,000. Anna, that is not a bad settlement for a whistleblower. It's not, but um, it's by no means guaranteed. She has to wait until the government gets paid and... We know how this stuff goes with <laughs> bankruptcy and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I thought the story broke at an interesting time. The world was pretty enraptured recently by the testimony of Francis Haugen, who is the whistleblower at Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, signed a bill called Silenced No More, which makes it difficult, more difficult, I should say, for companies to hide behind non-disclosure agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it easier for people to go public with concerns about discrimination um, harassment when before these companies in tech, especially I was reading had these very ironclad NDAs. And mm-hmm. so people felt like they couldn't even, they couldn't do anything about some of the disruptive stuff that was happening there. This isn't harassment. Obviously this is quality control. Mm-hmm. A recent op-ed in the San Francisco examiner by Dr. Mimi Winsberg seeks to clarify the motivations of whistleblowers, which I thought was very interesting read. Um, I know when you read this story about the crane company, um, you can't help but pause at that $800,000 figure um, that the whistleblower is going to receive for blowing the lid off this. But Dr. Winsberg says that the motivation for a whistleblower is almost never personal attention or money. In fact, it's about the person's innate need to resolve an ethical issue that's taken place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says that the psychological stress, along with like the backlash that comes, um, harassment that comes uh, to these people, um, you know, it's it's incredibly common that that would happen. And so it's important to point out that when events like this occur, it's um, it's easy to see this financial incentive as being the primary driver when in fact it's typically not. Um, right. So I think like we should be grateful for people um, like this woman who put 
herself in the line of fire really to get, you know, this fixed. I mean, in many cases, there's really only a handful of people that have access to this information or this knowledge to be able to right this wrong, which could have been a tremendous issue. Like the consequences of this, if something were to fail, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they have those regulations in place for a reason right. um, and material specs for a reason. So potentially someone could have gotten hurt, killed, who knows? Um, so anyway, I think like that stuff shouldn't go unchecked and, and it's important that we kind of rather than focus on that number and think like this person was like seeking out some financial award that, right. that probably the motivation was very different. No, I completely agree with you. It's just that the number is so large that it captures people's attention. It does. Yeah. And I mean, it is good to have that as an incentive to, you know, if somebody's on the fence, maybe help push them over. But I mean, you're right. She was a quality manager. And I mean, Jeff, these are parts that are going into um, Navy ships, but still the lawsuit claims, you know, become allegations only because there's no determinant of liability liability with a settlement like this. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, I wasn't clear exactly what the difference was because they're not even talking about the valve. They're talking about the seat, mm-hmm. which I think in layman's terms, we could describe as a seal essentially. Mm-hmm. So you can appreciate Monal is, it's an alloy, it's a metal. Mm-hmm. So using that as a seal as opposed to something that's made out of Teflon, which is more flexible, you could kind of understand how that would be a big deal especially if you're looking at a ship. Yeah, correct. You don't want leaks in a ship. Because the first thing when I read through this, I actually thought about the space shuttle. Remember? And the O-rings. Oh, yeah. The reason the Challenger blew up is because they traced it back to a simple, basically a piece of rubber that didn't have the temperature tolerances needed. And obviously it was a tragic situation. So when you look at this and you look again at at Corla Jacobson and what she did, it's such a small thing. But for her to to identify the, the discrepancy, to stand up for it, I mean, it could have saved thousands of lives somewhere mm-hmm. down the line. So obviously a big deal from a quality control. The couple of things that weren't discussed that kind of bugged me a little bit, maybe it's good because I'm a grumpy old man, mm-hmm. but- it's Got a theme. All right. <laughs> um, the replacement costs. Okay, they're going to pay the government $4.5 million to make up. Now, is that to, is, are they also going to go in and replace all these valves? Mm. Are they going to go in there because we don't want them on there, right? If it's not up to spec, it's not mm-hmm. what it needs to be. And we're talking about 3,600 valves. What, what happens there? Is that incorporated into this $4.5 million settlement or is that separate from it? Because I would hope that's what's paramount here. Yeah. It's not about the money that they have to pay. It's about making sure the right piece of equipment and the right component is in place here right? Yeah. Um, for, for our soldiers and our sailors. Then the other thing, and you mentioned that. Uh, there is no determination of liability because it's a settlement. Mm-hmm. It didn't actually go to court. Yeah. They figured out a way to do this. So as a result, Crane Company, you know, they pay some money. They deal with a couple of bad headlines for a couple months. Then what? Mm-hmm. Still a they, military contractor? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. what's scary to me. And that's also what bothers me because there should be <laughs> – somebody needs to point the finger and make mm-hmm. sure that these folks are being held accountable. Four and a half million dollars for a defense contractor – yeah, I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure. That's a huge penalty for them to suffer. So you think the other three point seven million dollars after Corla would get paid just goes to buying new valves? Maybe back to the replacement. Potentially, parts. yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> what I liked is that, uh, or not what I liked, but what I took from it was that you know, allegedly they supplied parts with unapproved components in the valves that were out of tolerance or parts that actually failed testing and were defective. Uh, the QPL program actually prohibits changes changes like uh, that uh, the valves experienced to materials in approved parts that don't have agency, in this case, the Navy's approval. 
So every two years, Crane certified that they were QPL compliant. And so, I mean, it, to me, it kind of felt like this comes down to a little bit of like a bureaucratic or like a pushing paper problem, because if they said they're do, they're remaining QPL compliant every uh, two years, like they had to submit something. But maybe that comes back on her and she was coerced or something. I mean, it's oh, hard yeah. to know what that situation Well, here's was. the thing. When you look at, if you do a little research on, on Monal, that type of, um, um, that material, it is used a lot in shipbuilding because mm-hmm. it's non-corrosive. It is very good in those applications, just not in this one specifically when you're talking about, a, again, a seat or a seal, whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. So they probably looked at it as like, yeah, this will work. I think from a paperwork perspective, from a bureaucratic perspective, mm-hmm. but it took somebody who really understood the engineering and the dynamics of how these things needed to fit together to call it out yeah. and make and maybe help everybody, including not not necessarily crane company, but everyone involved in this process to be like, you're right. Mm-hmm. This this isn't this isn't what we were this is not the spirit of the reg. This is not how we wanted this to be. And you guys knew that this was not the right way to do this. Well, in this QPL program, Jeff, it just made me think of something that you would particularly like because it's meant to cut out kind of all that nonsense. You know, right. once you're in the program, uh, you don't have the traditional product uh, project submission and documentation process requirements that manufacturers have to go through a lot. And so parts with a track record that have historically been acceptable and other small cost items like this, this valve are just approved. And so they can be sourced. And so it's kind of taking advantage of a program that's supposed to make everything safer and easier. Mm -hmm. And I found that particularly frustrating. Sure. Yeah. It's like, it almost invites you to bring back the red tape. Yeah. Um, And to your point, $4.5 million might not be a lot for a military contractor, but if that jeopardizes, Future your, ones. your future contracts. I mean, that could be a, and that's where that that clause gets gets yeah. frustrating, where they didn't have to admit any type of liability, right? Do you think do you, when they're uh, when they're going to approve them again? Do you think that's uh, think about that? It's like, well, we got all those bad valves. Is there someone in the room that goes allegedly? <laughs> they can, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh well, very good. Um, hopefully, they're all replaced by now. Yeah. Um, all right, our next most popular story. Most deer workers reject contract offer. On Sunday, October 10th, the vast majority of United Auto Worker union members rejected a contract offer from Deer and Company. On Thursday, more than 10,000 workers went on strike. The new deal offered 5 to 6% raises, and all sides seemed determined to continue working towards a resolution. It has been 35 years since the last major strike at the company, but now 14 deer plants are on strike, including seven in Iowa, four in Illinois, one in Kansas, Colorado, and Georgia. One each. It's not one that spans the state. Super factory. (laughs) The company will likely report record profits between 5.7 and 5.9 billion this year. Jeff, what was your, I mean, this is a huge strike, 10,000 workers. What was your take on the implications for the industry? Well, when you look at John Deere, since about middle of 2018, they have been, and you know, your wife will appreciate this, John Deere's been on a run. Mm. They've been doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a combination of an increase. Eric, that was a good one. Don't shake your head at me. Chip, <laughs> for the record. Stay behind the camera. Jeff just got booed by the video guys. <clears throat> the deer is a fast animal. Um, when you look at the the growth in a lot of the recreational equipment, like the gators that John Deere puts out, you also look at one of the supply chains that hasn't had the same type of negative ramifications during COVID, it's food. Mm-hmm. So the farmers have ideally seen better pricing, maybe more money to invest in tractors and then the type of equipment that they need. John Deere has been doing well the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I think 
their workers are seeing this. They're understanding this dynamic. Mm -hmm. They've also been working through the pandemic very steadily because they needed to. And when you look at a five, six percent pay increase, that's not asking for for the sun and stars. Yeah. Okay. It's, it seems very reasonable and in line. And especially when you pointed out some of the growth they've seen. I mean, again, since the middle of 2018, quarterly profits, mm -hmm. quarterly revenues have more than doubled. Yeah. So yeah, they're doing, they're in good good shape. It feels like there's maybe some other dynamics here, primarily what we've seen in other industries where the workers are like, hey man, we're doing well. Yeah. We've put up with a lot. Share the wealth a little bit here. Oh yeah. There's no doubt that that's a lot of dough. It probably caused the workers to buck the system. A lot of dough oh. for John Deere. And buck the system, he said. Nice. Anna! No! Wow. Oh, sorry. <laughs> man. Oh, man. I just, I figured, I felt shame eyes and I was just like, slow turn. All right. <laughs> shame eyes. Anna, uh, what's your take on the situation at John Deere? Uh, time for me to take a shot at this Deere story. Yep. Thank you. Are you going to be the grumpy old man on this right. one? Yep. Yep. Get it in your crosshairs. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to just line it up in my target here. Uh, we wanted to cover this story in last week's podcast. Right. Um, we talked about it beforehand. It was evolving so quickly. Um, at that time. So when we filmed, the, UA, uh, the UAW had tentatively accepted this contract. Right. Um, but we knew that it was at risk of being voted down. Mm -hmm. um, there was already some groups kind of brewing um, this vote no messaging. And it was just very precarious. So we thought we would kind of wait it out and see. So um, at the time, the there was some reports going around that said that the union was – not being, they accused the UAW of not being very forthcoming with information heading mm -hmm. into the vote. So some of the union members are saying, we don't know enough about this. They did it like a blackout on the talks. We don't know enough about the contract. So, you know, as you said, 90% of workers voted no. Mm -hmm. um, there's a new committee that's been formed that's called the John Deere Workers Rank and File Committee. And they've been particularly aggressive in kind of going after not just Deere in this situation, but also the UAW. Okay. Um, they issued a statement last Friday ahead of the vote where they called the contract garbage mm. and went so far as to say that the UAW could not be trusted to carry out an honest vote count. Wow. It's a pretty serious accusation. So it appears there's a lot of distrust here about the UAW's ability to kind of carry out the wishes of the Deere workers. Mm -hmm. And it's likely, I think, at least somewhat due to the fact that the workers feel that this is their absolute best opportunity to play hardball. Um, they're also contending that the raises outlined in this contract still put them under the rate of inflation. Um, we know that their contract that they, the last time they ratified this was six years ago. Deer was in a completely different place. Um, they had a really tough year and year prior, their stock was down. So the workers did not have the kind of leverage that I think that they maybe are looking at like once in a lifetime leverage right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So this rank and file group is demanding a 30% across the board pay increase. Wow. They say makes up for years of wage freezes and stagnation. So if they stick to that, this could take a while. Yeah. Um, I envision we will meet somewhere in the middle, but 30% versus Oof. 5%. That's a big gap. Yeah. That, it is when it, I guess I didn't realize 30% was the number. It's hard to envision meeting in the middle even. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know how many people this committee speaks for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they could be, you know, I don't know if this is a yeah. fringe group, but obviously enough workers said no to this contract that I'm guessing there's a lot of support here. 
90 percent. 90 percent is pretty <laughs> yeah. emphatic. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just one worker. But Chris Larson, a uh, painter at Deer, told the Des Moines Register, the whole nation's going to be watching us. If we take a stand here for ourselves, our families, for basic human prosperity, it's going to make a difference for the whole manufacturing industry. Let's do it. Let's not be intimidated. And I think it's right. There have been a lot of strike, a lot of large uh, strikes and labor unrest. But I feel like a lot of people are watching this one. And I mean, that's not just because numbers on these stories have been blown up on the site for the mm-hmm. last two weeks. Yep. Well, do you think some of this comes from the fact, like Anna was alluding to there, UAW needs a win. I mean, they've been through some rough times. There's still a lot of non-union automotive plants, especially in the southeastern part of the country. Um, they've just been through a scandal themselves with their leadership. Lots Incredible of scandals, scandals yeah. yeah. Um I think they may be sus because there is a lot of attention. We know this from from putting stories up on the sites. John Deere is one of those companies, regardless of what's happening, if they're announcing quarterly profits, yeah. if they're laying off folks, if they're building a factory, that just gets a ton of attention mm-hmm. regardless. Yeah. So now when you're looking at something this contentious, I think UAW potentially saw this as a way to get in there, get a win, get some positive notoriety for them because they have been taking a beating for a while. Yeah. 30% seems high, though. Yeah, sorry, well, that's a, that's a big number. The other thing that uh, um, I thought about is the suppliers, because if yeah. this does take a long time, suppliers are going to start laying off workers, and then they're going to start pressuring the company to you know settle the strike quickly. Um, that hits particularly close to home because I have family that have worked at facilities that do a majority of their business for John Deere. Mm-hmm. So when I read and think about things like that, you know, that's a direct impact to my family. And nobody wants to see that. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's there's the there are thousands of families right now that stand to, that don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah, that's that's scary. Um, one thing, uh, you know, sort of on the lighter side of this, not that there's a lighter side <laughs> of this story, but I found it interesting that they made a point of saying that the union dropped off metal barrels in firewood to keep the workers warm while they were striking 24 hours a day. And it was just like, how cold is it in Iowa right now? I guess I don't know, but it was just like, we're going to do it. Yeah. Get them a barrel. That should, they should be fine. Like check our barrel inventory, right? We're all out of UAW shirts. Uh, Get some wood. You just lost a tree, right? All right. Bring it over. No, uh, that just seemed like, um, you know, they're taking care of the workers and making sure they're warm. Positive. Positive. Because these workers are so soft that sometimes they get cold outside. Right, Jeff? (laughs) No, I can understand the angle. <laughs> He's some kind of monster over there. Wow. Jeez. Jeez. Just human beings, Anna. Our next most popular story has to do with humans as well, guys. <laughs> All right. Cement factory engulfed by lava. Last month, the Cumbre Vieja volcano on the Spanish island of La Palma erupted for the first time in 50 years. The volcano is still active and lava flows have claimed some 1,400 acres of farmland in nearly 1,200 buildings, including a cement factory. The cement plant was hit, was hit on Monday and caused a fire that led to a plume of toxic smoke that prompted the government to order lockdowns in a pair of nearby towns. No one has been killed or injured, but Jeff still can't breathe the air. This is crazy. Did you see the, I mean, see the pictures of this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize how big this was until you saw this small, I think it was a church or a house, mm-hmm. like in front of the building that was just spewing lava yeah. or in front of the mountain that was spewing lava. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. How would you like to be the business continuity guy working at this concrete God. manufacturing facility? First of all, you've got a product that's in huge demand because there's infrastructure needs 
all over the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you get hit with a global pandemic that shuts things down. And you have to deal with that. Mm. And now of all things, you've got a dormant volcano knocking on your door. Yeah. This, I mean, if he can make it through this and they can figure out a way to get this plan up and running, he needs to be awarded, he or she. I mean, incredible series of events they have to try to deal with. Yeah. Cannot even imagine. And the fact that they've basically given up on the plant. Yeah. They're just like, it's it's gone. It's a oh, loss. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. It is. It's nuts. This is an extraordinary situation. I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how, I mean, not just the plant, but it sounds like the community is going to have one hell of a rebuild on their hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't know like the, like how many volcanoes there are out there that mm-hmm. are potentially active. So I looked it up because. Ugh, Let's start with, like, are there yeah. any close to us? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Now how many are so there? So there are actually 1500 potentially active volcanoes worldwide. Oh, wow. A lot of them are located in like the sort of Pacific Rim area they call the Ring of Fire. Hmm. There's oh, a okay. there's 169 in the United States that are being monitored, which is a lot more than I thought. <laughs> um, but according to, uh, so most of those are in Alaska. Oh, okay. Um, but according to a 2017 study that I found, even relatively small scale climatic changes affect volcanic activity. And scientists believe that today's global warming could mean more and bigger volcanic eruptions in the future. Does this surprise anyone? <laughs> no. Mm. Well, I, I mean, mean, it's got to surprise you because there's just more volcanoes than you expect. I didn't know all that. the volcanoes. There's mm-hmm. so many volcanoes. Mm-hmm. In another life, I did a, I was working on a magazine that worked with mobile tool dealers. <clears throat> it, was, it was in one up in Oregon, and the guy was driving around, and they had lava flow, like emergency lava flow routes. Oh, wow. Because they have like Mount Hood that mm-hmm. is they have to worry about out there. He's like, oh yeah, it's, it's right there. I mean, you can see it. Well, yeah. go ahead, Anna. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I Obviously, many of our listeners probably don't live or work near active volcanoes. They're in very specific areas, it seems. But um, in the U.S., uh, you know, as I said, they're in they're in Alaska. So I don't think, I don't know how many, if, if we have Alaska listeners, please. We do. We have at least one. His name is Don. We do? Yeah, it makes fishing lures. What's up, Don? Don, tell us what you know about volcanoes because I got a lot of questions. Yeah, what is your volcano business continuity Contingency plan? Contingency plan, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think the... the yeah, we'll get you shirt. We'll get you shirt, yeah. yeah. I think the point here is that climate change is increasing the chance of almost every potential natural disaster, both in frequency and severity. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be interesting to see how these risk calculations sort of factor into business and industry, like... I don't know if you saw that really uplifting report recently about all the major cities that will be underwater if we continue to just burn, right? You know, fossil fuels and and increase the temperature of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, from a business standpoint, uh, there are a lot of implications here, like where you are going to build the factories of the future, where you're going to expand your business. Like our our coastlines becoming off limits. Do people look at these from sort of a I don't know an analyst, like an insurance executive would look at like, where are yeah, risk the, assessment? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, everything's going to be a straight line down the Midwest. I guess. I don't know. I mean, so it's just like, there's obviously there's tons of human implications here, but, but there's also a lot of business ones and um, it's just a good reminder. You know, I, I know we get a lot of them, but to, to be conscious about like how we're going to move forward and deal with this problem. Right. And that uh, our current track is not sustainable. Not sustainable. Jeff, to your point, how do you even plan to this? Uh, so I went to 
the CDC's key facts about protecting yourself during a volcanic eruption. Oh, you can plan wow. for it. Okay. okay. You call. can plan for it. Step one, leave. That's step one. <laughs> leave the area immediately. That is good advice. Yeah. Step two, if you are warned to evacuate because an eruption is imminent, evacuate. That's step two. So step two is also leave? Well, step one is just leave. Yeah. And step two is if you're told to leave before you've left, leave then. Leave again. Yeah. yeah okay. No, leave, leave early. It feels okay. like those should be reversed. Yeah. No, they, they weren't because they really wanted the number one to hit home. Get out of there. Like, uh, number three, if you can drive rather than walk, drive to evacuate. <laughs> These are real. These are real. Now. When driving, keep doors and windows closed. Drive across the path of danger if you can. <clears throat> drive across the path of danger if you can, or away from the danger if you cannot, and watch for unusual hazards in the road. So, leave, leave early, leave fast. Leave in a car. It's not bad advice. <laughs> it's yeah. not, but it's just like the CD. I feel like sometimes the CDC is just like, what's it going to take for people yeah. to listen? How many bullet points do you need? Yeah. Watch Dante's Inferno and <laughs> Dante's, Dante's Peak. Peak. Dante's Peak. And just to correct myself, my Pacific Northwest geography was definitely bad. Oh. <laughs> it was actually in Washington. It was Mount Rainier, not Mount oh. Hood. Oh, okay. So people in Portland, don't worry about it. You're fine. Well, the other thing that I thought was interesting in terms of preparation, though, is that COVID might have actually helped make people more prepared for a volcanic eruption because – Things that you want are now kind of just standard PPE, like having an N95 mask mm -hmm. and goggles, because ash is one of the biggest problem outside of getting burned by the lava. Interesting. Yeah. The ash can even, you know, stall your car. So that's why if you're going to leave in a car, leave immediately in a car. Uh, the Red Cross also says that it is important to have an evacuation plan. So have an evacuation well. plan. The, the plant management at this facility, they had a plan. They yeah. did get everybody out of there. They so. got. Every, I mean, that was actually, it was just, you know, we see so many of these kind of negative disaster stories or, you know, safety stories. And it was nice to have one where while it was, it's a tragic loss, everyone kind of made it out alive. Yeah. All right. Again, step one. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to in case you missed it. And in case you missed it, we'd like to talk about the stories that, Maybe they weren't as popular with the readership, but, you know, still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'd like to start with you, Anna. Um, what's your in case you missed it this week? So I thought it was funny that so many people missed it, I guess, because um, the Amazon story was so popular. Right. This is another fraud based story. But because it was a government program, I think everyone was like, well, yeah, mm -hmm. we know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's been so many PPP fraud uh, stories out there that I don't know. Well, and it just, yeah, it feeds, they feed into that narrative that government programs are rife for fraud, and it seems that they are. So um, the Small Business Administration, which is a small agency that was sort of thrust into a very big role in the early part of the pandemic, uh, promised grants to small businesses who were harmed by the pandemic's impacts. We remember this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, since then, we've learned, as we learned with some of the other PPP initiatives, as you mentioned, that tons of fraud was taking place. This wasn't just about people lying to get cash. It was about people inputting information in the application that made them ineligible that was not even being caught. Mm. So I don't know. That's like walking into the bank and being like, give me $50,000. It's in my account. And then the bank just being like, well, we have no way of verifying that. Sure. Yeah. Like, here you go. <laughs> here you go. But yeah. You know what? We'll take your word for it. Yeah. Would you like the canvas bag? 
Or would you like it all in coin? Would you like a bag with a dollar sign on the outside? Here I believe that's how you get big a, withdrawals. It's like a knapsack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I know how to rob a bank. If you're a cartoon, that's how you do it. Absolutely. Anyway, so it seems like the, the program was rolled out so hastily that even basic fraud protection like tools that could have existed within software supporting the program were not being used. So Hannibal Ware, the inspector general of the SBA, said in a report that the New York Times reported this last week, that the fraud protection tools in the software were, in fact, so poorly executed, they failed to flag flawed or illogical information, which included people saying they had a million or more employees. This was not flagged. Yeah. This yeah. is the Small Business Administration. Right. Which, are, are there any companies in the world that have a million employees? No. So, by Ware's calculation... Um, applicants suspected of fraud were eligible for about 700 million of the 5.2 billion that they actually received. And he believes that the federal government um, should go back and try to reclaim some of this money. And so do I. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because it's like, it's like what? 20% like of what? Yeah. 20% of the, or the four and a half billion or, Oh no, the fraud. Yeah. So the fraud, the fraud was about 25% of the total program because um, it was a $20 billion program and like 5.2 billion kind of wrapped up with these fraudulent uh, actors. So <clears throat> it's a big mess. I mean, I know the pandemic rollout at the beginning in 2020 was very chaotic. I think we can all have a little bit of, well, I don't know, you give the government a little bit of grace on that, mm-hmm. but this is outrageous. Four billion? That's yeah. a lot to this screw is, up. This, well, is, this is a lot to screw up, I agree. What's to stop? Why would they not go back and try and reclaim it? I don't know. I think oh, okay. they should. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's two different administrations, right? So yeah, like, yeah. it's just when trying they were to handing out the bag of money. They didn't take a receipt. <laughs> they didn't take a receipt. But I mean, like, I get a typo here and there, but I mean, some of the bold lies are amazing. Amazing. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know what? I have a one. No, I have a hundred. You know what? We have one million employees. <laughs> let's make let's lock this up. It's yeah, almost let's make like sure. daring them to like. Yeah, I mean, you almost are like, well, you earned it. I, but, you had the grapes to put in a million. <laughs> Take it. Like, I mean, produce selection aside, they uh, like. Uh, that was one of the things with you know people were joking about it with the uh, the PPP loans coming out about how it was free money. You know, mm-hmm. free money. It's the government. They're never going to check it, but. To their, you know, um, I don't, who's in charge of the PPP loan fraud? Because whoever is, it seems like they seem to be pursuing it quite a bit, mm-hmm. you know, uh, tenaciously. Whereas this, I mean, the tone of it sounds like, I mean, if we get a guy to get on it, we'll put him on it. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Uh, Jeff, you know, we were talking about fraud last week. Is this is this how we do it? Is this a better way? Is this a better way? No. <laughs> yeah. this no, is the best I don't way. think they're doing it real well. the best way we have. This is the best way to fraud. <laughs> <laughs> how do you do fraud? Yeah. Um, is this how you yeah. do fraud? That's this, how, this is the way you allow fraud. Yeah. I think they're the best practice for what not to do. I mean. Man, that's how I get prosecuted. Is there like you Googled how to fraud? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is mind blowing. When you see the amount that was just basically given away. Mm-hmm. Didn't care. Yeah. It's just, it has Jeff so angry he's defeated. Well, and then the, you know, the program runs out of money and there's all these legitimate businesses that didn't get any mm-hmm. because these real jerks yeah. tried to game the system. No, but it's a uh, bad system. That's one of the things, though, that we didn't, I mean, we've brought it up before where we got an opportunity to talk about a couple of the companies that used it to keep employees on full time, mm-hmm. keep the lights on, keep, uh, you know, 
people supporting their families. And then, but it's not, those aren't the ones that get the attention. Yeah. It's the guy that, you know, buys a Lambo. That's true. I mean, it did do a lot of good for a lot of companies. All these programs did. Um, but you're right. You see the, the amount of money that was just thrown in the Set trash. But yeah, basically. Man. That's hard to swallow that. Well, at least some of these people probably had a really good time last year. I guess. All right. My in case you missed it this week. The FDA changes sanitizer rule to address supply glut. That's right. We got a banging hand sanitizer. Yeah. In the spring of 2020, the FDA permitted manufacturers who weren't approved drug makers to make alcohol-based sanitizer. By April 2021, there was such a surplus that some companies were giving it away. Well, this week, the FDA announced that it would be withdrawing the temporary guidance of hand sanitizer that it issued last year. The agency said those permitted to produce it temporarily either have to stop doing so by the end of the year or update their operations to comply with the applicable requirements. Now, of all the things with COVID, one of the things I'm not going to miss is that off-brand sanitizer. (laughs) Just the random stuff where you're like, you have to check the FDA list of the ones with cancer-causing ingredients to see if it's on there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or the ones that reek of tequila. Like, uh, I'm not going to miss that one. Just, uh, hey, do you have any sanitizer before we leave this wedding? Oh, yeah, I've got this stuff. Reeks like tequila. Let me just coat my body in it before I drive home. That's fantastic. (laughs) They're going to believe that. Um, No, also, just like the weird packaging we saw where it was sanitizer and, like, drink it, like, water bottles. And, like, uh, liter uh, liquor bottles. And people were drinking it. So this whole, I'm happy to see this go away, Jeff. Yeah, not a bad idea. I mean, people putting yeah. out their questionable stuff. The ones that we saw a lot of were like distilleries yes, um, yeah. putting stuff out. Mm-hmm. That's I wonder how many stuff. of these they actually had to tell them to stop because I think most people just stopped on their right. own. Like who's yeah. still like pumping out hand sanitizer if you can't <clears throat> sell it? Yeah. That's actually a really good point. It doesn't cover whether or not this <laughs> impacts anybody. Because still a good call to rein people in a little bit because, yeah. yeah, there's some bad stuff out there. Yeah, there's like maybe one or two guys. I mean, that's why anytime I go to the grocery store, there's at least one cart, if not two, full of sanitizer at the front where it's just like, please take this yeah. home. Do you remember, yeah. though, at the beginning of this, the like amount of gouging that was happening about oh, yeah. sanitizer? Absolutely. Making your own at home. Yeah. 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 Well, oh. and it was like, uh, you know, people in the moment, people didn't know. Everyone was rallying. Every, everything from, you know, cannabis companies to distilleries, everyone was making sanita- hand sanitizer because they thought it was for the greater good. It was for the greater good. It, I yes. mean, like it really, I think, like brought people together. The fact that like these companies were pivoting and trying to do this, even though it wasn't their core product. Right. Do, yeah. I mean, obviously, the impact of constantly sanitizing and washing and spraying and cleaning is, you know, debatable at this point. But at right. that time, I think we all felt better about the fact that people were rallying yeah. around. I agree. Right. Um, all right, Jeff, let's go to your in case you missed it story this week. I realized this week that I really have been playing with the mic way too much lately. Just got to yeah. hands off. You okay? I don't, apparently, that's my new tick. Um, all right. Maybe what, you just need a handheld. I just, just, oh, just yeah. Just, the whole time. You guys oh, will be yeah, stationary yeah. and I'll just keep walking just around. Just like a like, George Michael hey guys. kind of right, sway. No. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> all right. Uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? So... <laughs> I think I've always been pretty outspoken. In fact, that I have a kind of a carnivore when it comes to food. Uh, you know, it's what I love. Jeff's yeah. not getting soft. Um, <laughs> he never would. No, right. Never mind. Jeff. Jeff. So, you- <laughs> but at the same time, I have no issues with if somebody's going to make a product because somebody wants it. 
go for it. Mm-hmm. I've had like the um, the Impossible Burgers, um, some of the other plant based meat options that are out there. If that's your thing, great, go mm-hmm. for it. This one just kind of bothered me a little bit. Okay, this just I I don't Too know far? exactly what it was, but it was a story about Nestle adding a plant based egg and shrimp products. Now the egg stuff I get. There's mm-hmm. been egg substitutes for a while. No, I was in the army for 12 years. Ate plenty of powdered eggs. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A plant-based seafood option. I'm sorry. I just there's something about that that seems super unpalatable. That yeah. just I don't know. I mean, there's bad seafood out there anyway. When you know when you've had it, Anna maybe does not. But yeah. Um. So just the fact, and they're only talking about it comes after a substitute for tuna that was launched a year ago. Yeah. Canned tuna is already a little like, mm, I'd rather Delicious. not. <laughs> so now we're talking about a plant-based shrimp. I don't know. I understand it's a huge growing market. This is, They're actually going to start this in Europe. That um, makes sense. With a limited launch, um, I believe it's next year. I also, in this article, they talked about a vegan Kit Kat. Mm. Mm, yeah, I and saw it, that they're working on that, yeah. So it's just, it feels like, I guess, if somebody wants it, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, this one just if there's a market did not for sit right. Well, it's interesting that you say it's going to be over in the UK or the European market because uh, when we've traveled abroad, have you guys ever tried some of the exotic flavored chips that they have over there? Ugh. Yeah. So I've had the shrimp flavored like Lay's uh, when I was in Amsterdam, and I just assume that these are just more of that powder, more as a cake. Yeah, you can put Old Bay seasoning Does on anything sound and make it good? taste like fish. No, okay. this does not sound good. Oh. And can we also take a minute to talk about the names? Like the naming mechanisms for yeah. fake meat items are just obnoxious. And they call them veggie for the fake egg yeah. and vrimp. Vrimp. <laughs> Who is going to be like, Ugh. hey, hon, uh, did you add Did you add the vrimp to, a, the, to the grocery list? Can I have a vrimp cocktail, please? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Just like, in, I mean, do they have a fake vein in it? Uh, no. What's the texture? I just I cannot man, wait to make and serve it. you a vrimp cocktail, Jeff. You can. Well, so right. I mean, Anna, does this sound like is this something that you would try? You know, being a vegetarian. Yeah, I would. I would try. I would try any of this stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like just I don't know. You can't fault people for you know being vegetarians and wanting some variety in their life. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah you don't want it to just be tofu or bust. Right, exactly. Like, um, I think people have this misconception that vegetarians just want to eat like lettuce all day, <laughs> which is very far from the truth. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. I'd give it a shot, maybe. I guess from maybe. that, Rimp is a dumb name, though. I agree with you. Rimp, like, what are they yeah. doing? Ugh. I mean, unless they're hoping to make more of a splash on the asinine name. So is. V- is it veggie or it, veggie? It's like, you know, when you that go, one I can at least. But when you go eh, mix it and match in like upper and lowercase letters, like everything's lowercase except the egg and veggie. It's just like, oh, good. I get it now because you hit me over the head with a hammer with it. <laughs> like, it's uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's um, and to your point, Anna, though, like I think that's something that I don't put in perspective when I try like a chick apostrophe in sandwich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, no, this is definitely not nearly as good as a breaded chicken sandwich. I don't think, well, that's not something that you have in your menu. So yeah. maybe this is a, you know, an improvement or 
a nice substitute. Right. And if you haven't had meat in like 20 plus years, which I haven't, yeah, I have no idea what it tastes like anymore. Yeah. So you can give me this garbage. I'll probably eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't call it vrimp. Oh, man. I can't wait for a vrimp taste test. I mean, what do you do? You saute this? Is this something you put on a skewer and grill? Mm. Yuck. Let's get some vrimp up in here mm. and find out. Yes. You have yes. to wait about two years. Uh, is that oh. two years under development still? You got a Google reminder that you can set. Oh, my goodness. So is this right? Their plant-based products sales went from $216 million to $863 million last year? Because if that's right, all right, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that's the, um, you know, the burger. Like for us, we had the, like the brat substitutes, you know, mm-hmm. sausages yeah. and stuff like that. I could see how that's become that much more popular. Yeah. Um, that's what my wife prefers. Um, I get it. This one. Too far for me. Too far. Vrimp is step too far. Peyron will try Vrimp with me, right? I hope she's watching. <laughs> Seafood is the one meat that she's Oh, pretty... she still does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Uh, Anna, we'll start with you. What is your final thought? I just want to say happy birthday to two people that will never watch this. My youngest children who are celebrating their birthday tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they will be four. And I'm excited. That's excellent. Happy birthday, kids. We got a lot of cake to eat this weekend. And since um, we aren't really like back in full on birthday party Mm -hmm. volume of events right now, we're just inviting their grandparents over. But I have to get two birthday cakes because they're twins and it's not fair to just get one. Oh, yeah. Man. But there's a lot of cake to get through. Leftover birthday cake on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Put it in the fridge. It lasts a long time. Does it? Yeah. All right. I don't think so. I don't think it'll keep. You probably should bring it in. (laughs) (laughs) Right down the road. What were the cakes? Uh, We... (laughs) We got a chocolate uh, with vanilla frosting, and then my son, I asked him what kind of cake he wanted, and he said, um, kill it, <laughs> which is the weirdest choice for a three turning four-year-old. I was like, how do you even know what that is? All right, old man. I know. You're that, getting it. I mean, I know that pumpkin spice gets all the headlines right now, but this is like also carrot cake season for me. Is it? And well, it's, it's just the window where I like it, yeah. and then it goes away quickly after December. <laughs> Um, we're gonna throw uh, a podcast co- producer throw a couple Eric of rimp on the Barbie and wants to know really. if we can get a rimp flavored one. I mean, no. Okay, no, no, no. There are no options. There are no options for uh, rimp. Uh, Jeff, what is your final thought this week? I just want to apologize to all Milwaukee Brewers fans out there for just putting the kibosh on the season by making a bold pro- projection prediction. Yeah. There, is that a line? I'm wrong, and I apologize for it because it did not work out well. I mean, you were right. It was done in four. It was done in four. <laughs> yeah. Wrong side of that one. No, it was really sad. But it's good to see good baseball played by other teams. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> My final thought this week is actually just a programming note. We are going to be recording live next Thursday at the same time, 1230 Central on YouTube. So if you'd like to join us uh, for the live show, want to give you a little bit more of a heads up there. Also, 1230 um, on the nose. 12.30 on the nose, because I am always punctual, and things are already always set in the studio. Right? Right. Okay. I'm not taking all of this one. No. <laughs> it's that one we know. <laughs> all right. We did actually get one comment from uh, listener Nolan, who says, carrot cake is super cash. <laughs> and I got to imagine that Nolan is some sort of youth, because I don't understand what's going on beyond the carrot cake. Nope. Some nope. sort of youth. Yeah. Does that mean it's yeah. expensive? 
Is it a I'm older is than it a you? Good, how am I going to know? Is it a know. good thing? Maybe it's one of those things where like it was so old, it's new again. So like maybe I don't know. All right. No well, anyway, we have one more. No, we don't have one more. We just have producers that are not good at typing. All right. Well, before we get it's out backwards. of here, it's you're right. You're right. That's it. The keyboard's backwards. All right. Uh, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. To email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, if you wanted a free Stay in Manufacturing t-shirt, we still have a couple of those to give away before we start charging for them. And if you want to make sure that you get the podcast in your inbox first, please make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.